In this episode, I interview Macy and we go in-depth about how sustainable brands can get funding. She breaks down the entire funding process, she explains common terms, she also lets you know what you should put in a pitch deck to get the attention of an investor, and so much more. So make sure you tune in. Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is the top-rated podcast for slow fashion founders. Whether you're thinking about launching a slow fashion brand, scaling an existing clothing brand, or making a brand more environmentally friendly, we have you covered. I'm your host, Selena Ho, the founder and CEO of Recloseted. Each week, I'm sharing my proven strategies or interviewing industry experts. Without any further ado, let's get started. As I mentioned, I am joined by Macy in this episode, and she is the director of Glasswall Syndicate, the largest plant and cell-based investor network in the world. Macy has spent the last half decade working with startups and investors to drive transformational change and lead innovative initiatives that have accelerated the industry. While the network has historically focused mainly on the future of food, Glasswell Syndicate has now partnered with the Material Innovation Initiative to create new programs and initiatives that support the next-gen materials industry. Macy shares so much knowledge and insights in this episode, so it's going to be such a good resource for you. And if you are in the beginning stages of starting a sustainable fashion brand, I also wanted to mention some additional resources we have for you as well. First of all, we recently launched our YouTube channel, and if you haven't heard, this is going to be the new platform where I'm going to go in-depth on certain topics because I just think it's the best format to do that. So I'm going to be posting 20 to 30 minute videos going really in-depth around my secret strategies that we typically reserve for clients, but happy to share with you because I know that times are tough right now. So make sure you search up Recloseted Consulting on YouTube. We're going to have a link in the show notes as well. And make sure you subscribe. We are new to the platform, so we're love some love and of course that way the new videos will always be at the top of your subscription box as well and then secondly we have our free launch method ebook this is jam-packed it's 30 pages long it's valued at over 50 dollars, and it details my signature launch method formula that we walk through with our clients to take them from idea all the way to successful launch that makes at minimum twenty thousand dollars so if you haven't snagged this ebook, highly recommend you do so and you can get it at recloseted.com launch and the link will also be in the show notes for you as well. And last but not least, I am hosting an amazing one hour free masterclass in September detailing how sustainable fashion brands can successfully launch. We're going to talk about fashion designing. We're going to be talking about sourcing materials and production. We're also going to be covering funding and marketing. So it's going to be a jam packed workshop. Make sure you get your spot. You can find out more information and sign up at recloseted.com slash masterclass and highly recommend you check this out because I am not going to hold back here and I really want to make sure that we deliver an insane amount of value to our clients. So with all that being said, summary of all the resources, check out our YouTube channel, check out the ebook and sign up for the masterclass. Now let's dive into the interview with Macy. Thank you so much for joining me, Macy. I am so honored to be here with you. And to get started, can you please introduce yourself and give us a quick overview of your career? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Macy Marriott. I'm the director of Glasswell Syndicate. My, I'm based in the Kansas City area. My career path into venture 
has been quite unconventional. Uh, so I do not have your standard path into venture by any means. So my background is accounting. I studied accounting in college. I hold two degrees, one in public accounting and one in private industry accounting with a focus on governmental and nonprofit. And so when I graduated, I got a job as an auditor at one of the banks that's headquartered here in the Kansas City area. I've been doing that for a little over a year and I just, I yearn to do something else. I really wanted to do work and be part of something that was tackling these huge challenges that we're, we're facing. And I've been vegan for about 10 years at this point. And so wanted to get into animal welfare, sustainability, any way I knew how. And so I left the bank uh, and I actually got a job at my local animal shelter. It is the largest open admission no-kill shelter in the Midwest. They were looking for someone to do accounting and some general business. And I was just excited for the opportunity to feel like the work that I was doing had a positive impact. And so those around me, especially in like the accounting audit world, they did not understand why I was happier than I'd ever been. I was working twice as many hours for half the pay. It's very different environment than, than banking was. And I just felt like it was filling my cup and that I was I was doing my part and I loved the people that I was meeting and that everybody kind of shared this mission and that really brought a sense of community that I'd never had in kind of the accounting audit world. And so I'd been doing that for a little over a year when I found out about Stray Dog Capital, which was and is one of the most prominent VC firms in the plant and cell based space. And they're based in Kansas of all places, which is where I am. So they were right in my own backyard and they were really pioneers. They were investing in alternative protein in the very, very early days when it looked very different than it does now. And they had hired, you know, Lisa Feria is our CEO, and uh, they were looking to hire an analyst. And I applied for the role knowing that I didn't have, you know, an investment banking internship under my belt or anything like that, but I did have finance experience. And I understood, you know, the work that was being done to transform the food system and next the materials industry and, you know, alternative to animal testing technologies and all those things. And so luckily it worked out. I had been working with the firm for just a short amount of time when they started mentioning this Glasswell Syndicate. And I was like, tell me more about that. And it was really this network that brought angels and VC firms together back when the space looks so different than it does now. You were really having to, you know, convince people that we felt like there was a there, there, not protein. It had a lot of potential and it was just a handful of investors. And they said, we really wanted to create something that brought all the key players together because it was still really small. And they said, is that something you would be interested in? And it felt like the perfect opportunity and challenge that really combined my skills of having that kind of for-profit finance background, but also having worked in nonprofit. And Glasswell is a nonprofit, but we're at the intersection of nonprofit and venture capital, which is very unique. And so I've been leading Glasswell Syndicate ever since. So I've been there for uh, five years. Wow, that's amazing. And it's really cool to see how you started with two degrees in a very kind of trajectory in accounting where it's very, you know, you join the big four and you you do all the things, but it was very, very, very promising to see that you really 
tried to do something that you were passionate about, you went after that, and then now you're the director of Glasswall Syndicate, which is amazing. That's so inspiring. I very much went through a quarter life crisis. Like when I first got into banking, I was like, I, you know, you, you always know what your next move is, right? You have, when I was in high school, I did work study and I took the college credits and I, you know, was trying to get into a a school and then pick accounting. And then you're, the goal is to get a decent job once you graduate. And then I felt like there'd been years and years of knowing what was next and building up. And then I sat in this like, tiny cubicle, like, you know, doing kind of traditional audit work. And I just, I really wanted to do something else, but it was not when I was in it, it was really, really tough to see what could be on the other side of that. And even jumping into the shelter was really challenging because it was twice the work for half the pay. And I knew it wasn't sustainable for me to stay in a role like that, but it kind of opened up the door that I wanted to do something mission driven and it gave me time to figure out what I wanted to do next. And then things worked out and and yeah, very, very proud to be the director of the organization. But but I always like to share that journey getting there was was one that was very, very confusing for a long time. Yeah. And I really appreciate that transparency because a lot of times you hear folks on a podcast just make it seem really linear, but that's not really the case. And it's the same thing with me too. I used to work a nine to five job and I was miserable in my cubicle trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then I started to be closeted. But again, it's not a linear transition. It's messy and that's okay. And it comes with quarter life crises and all these mental breakdowns. And that's just part of the journey. And so can you tell us a little bit more about Glasswall Syndicate? You did a really good explanation, but I'm just curious about also how you're a nonprofit and operating in that VC world, because that's almost not like an oxymoron or a paradox, but it's just interesting to have that in the same sentence. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Um, So Glasswall Syndicate, we started back in 2017, originally focused on alternative protein that has expanded quite a bit over the years. You know, we focus on alternative protein still, but next generation materials, alternative to animal testing technologies, enabling technologies. So that's really expanded. But as I mentioned, and I'm sure you've seen the the landscape has just evolved so much since those early days. And so what we were recognizing was we knew everybody that was investing in alternative protein And the fundraising process has a lot of inefficiencies in it. So, you know, being a a founder is hard. Being a founder that is fundraising is really challenging. And you're kind of meeting with all of these different investors. They all have a different process. It's really hard to prioritize. You may be having conversations with an investor that you feel like it's going really well, and then it ends up not working out, or maybe communications kind of dwindle, you might have somebody who didn't seem interested, but then at the last minute, they're really interested. And it's just, it's really, really hard to coordinate. And there ends up being a lot of inefficient administrative elements as well. Just as simple as like figuring out when an investor is available, when their calendar is available or coordinating samples. And so the idea of Glasswell Syndicate was how do we streamline the fundraising process for startups. And then on the other side of that, streamline the due diligence process for investors. And that's where Glasswell Syndicate was born because it really made sense for all parties involved. So the idea behind Glasswell Syndicate is that you're working with a group of investors 
It's very collaborative in nature. So instead of having to, you know, schedule, if you're an invest, if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to get investor calls, instead of scheduling 20 one hour diligence calls where you're probably going to get asked almost all the same questions, we can just hold a one hour diligence call with 20 investors. That makes way more sense. And then what we can do is we can focus on what really matters, which is understanding the company, understanding the team and driving relationship between the startup and the potential investors. So that's what we did. And we we kind of brought this process where a company will apply for Glasswell Syndicate We'll go through a review process and we host pitch days every other month. So, you know, every other month we have five to seven companies that are curated that we think our members are going to be really excited about. They pitch for 15 minutes. We do like a 10 minute Q&A with some of our expert panelists, which are members of Glasswell Syndicate. And the goal of the pitch day is really just for investors to be able to say, that's interesting. I'd like to learn more or, you know, no, that's not a fit for me and my firm for whatever reason. And then we break out into streamlined deal teams. So that just means that all of the Glasswell Syndicate members that are interested in exploring your deal further are going to work together. And then we have a volunteer. We have 22 volunteer deal leaders. These are people who are investors and have really busy schedules, but kind of take on this additional responsibility because they support the space and they see what we're trying to do. And they basically, that deal leader acts as the liaison between the entrepreneur and the interested investors. So as you're coordinating samples, instead of even just like getting 17 different emails with addresses or like, I'll be at this address this day and this address is just, you just send that to the deal leader and then they can send one spreadsheet to the startup. If there's an error in the data room, if you, if you upload your data room and maybe one of the documents has an error in it, instead of getting a bunch of emails saying, Hey, this, you know, this, this tab is have, has an error in it. You're going to get that one time from your deal leader, and they're going to be the one that's sending out the Calendly, figuring out when everybody's available, coordinating diligence calls. And so they will essentially schedule typically two, sometimes three diligence calls. So those are about an hour or so each. And then they're going to schedule some internal calls. And this really is an important piece of the Glasswell process as well, because in venture capital, a huge component of looking at a deal is that if you know someone else that's looking at the same deal, you call them up and you say, hey, you're looking at this deal. We're looking at this deal. We're thinking about investing. But, you know, these are three things we're excited about. And these are three things we're concerned about. And when you can create that kind of on hyperdrive, where we have 15, 20 investors on the same, you know, investors call and say, hey, I'm, I'm worried about this. Oh, that's such a good point. It just makes you make decisions faster. And time kills all deals. And so we want to make sure that we're moving the process forward as efficiently as we possibly can. And so at the end of this process, we do offer something called an SPV, and we can get into that if that's of interest. But most of our companies are presenting like a direct investment opportunity. So at the end of this process, they're, you know, the investors, if they're interested in participating, they're going to sign their own documents, they're going to wire the funds separately, like it will become their portfolio company. We're just kind of creating this process throughout the due diligence efforts. But from the time a company pitches to the time they potentially get funding from members, it's only about five weeks. Our process is only about five weeks, which is really accelerated. So, you know, when you're fundraising, it can be three, four, five, six months. Uh, within this space, it does tend to be a little bit faster. We, we, we see about two and a half months on average for, for a lot of the investors that we work with. That's kind of their timeline. But when we do it within the network, it's usually about 
five weeks. And when we think about the deal flow funnel for a VC, you know, typically a VC firm, they invest in only about one to 2% of all the deals that partner sees in a year. So it's, you're hearing a lot of no. So when you come through Glasswall, if you're selected for a pitch day, so far this year, 70% of all the companies that have pitched have received funding. And it's you know a tough environment right now for fundraising too. So we're really proud of that percentage. So I, I hope that kind of overviews like the value that the network brings and, and the reason that we are a nonprofit. I think that that's played a really critical role in our growth because we started with about five members. And the next thing we knew, we had 50 investors and then 150 investors. And then we have over 200 investors in the network. We're the largest, you know, um, plant and cell based investor network in the world. We were the first, you know, we're the only one that's a nonprofit. And I think that that's because it's really played a key role in building those relationships with investors and with startups that they understand like why we're doing this and what motivates us. And it's really accelerating the adoption of these products and services and, you know, playing our part in helping getting additional capital deployed in the space. And something that I do think is important to mention is that our network is actually a mix of angel investors and kind of family offices, funds, trust foundations. So we have a lot of individually accredited investors that don't necessarily wake up in the morning and think, you know, I'm an angel investor. They just meet accredited investor status. And we have eye doctors, we have surgeons, we have people in real estate, we have people all across, you know, different industries who they just have some funds that they're eager to put behind these companies. And that's really where we we see a lot of impact as well, is that if Glasswell didn't exist, these, these investors may just be putting it into something else. So if we can drive dollars into the space, like we think that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that amazing overview. I can tell that you're so passionate about it. And after listening to you speak, I can see why. And it just seems like you've taken every single pain point in the entire fundraising and investing process and really addressed it. And I think that's so amazing. And it really speaks to all the success that you and the team have had. So huge congratulations. And before we go further, though, I know you mentioned a few technical terms, and I don't want any of the listeners to feel stressed out. So do you mind just explaining, you know, what is Angel and investing? What's your seed round? What is deal flow? Just some of those things that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about fundraising, there's probably a lot of different terms that I use. So when we talk about deal flow, that really just means all the deals in the pipeline. So if you're an investor and you join Glasswell Syndicate, what are you looking for? Angel investors or individually accredited investors, those are typically people who are high net worth individuals who are willing to come into your round very early in the process. They take on a lot of risk by doing that, but also there's a huge potential for return, both financial return and impact, right? And so that's where those angels, that's what that means. Those angels will usually participate in those pre-seed or seed, very early stage rounds, which I can explain kind of what that means here in just a moment. But as those individual investors start thinking about putting funds into companies in this space, it's very daunting. Like day one, where do you go? How do I know what deals to look at? How do I know what questions to ask? How do I get a sense of the competitive landscape? 
So when we talk about deal flow with Glasswall, we kind of have two different things. Deal flow just meaning all of the companies that have a pitch deck in our portal. So we have something called an open round form, which is what any startup can fill out 24-7, 365. So if you fall within our thesis, which is removing animals from the supply chain, then you can fill out this form and that goes on the Glasswell portal, which means that investors can, can click on deal flow, which will show all of those pitch decks and they can go through a filtering process and say, my, as an investor specifically, I will only invest in, in US-based companies. You know, Glasswell is geographically agnostic. We have companies from all over the world because innovation happens all over the world. But some of our members may only be, you know, investing within the US. You know, are they, you know, do they have a certain revenue that they're looking for for companies that they might invest in? So there's certain filters that they can add to that. From all of that deal flow, all of those pitch decks and companies that are raising within our thesis, that's when we pull out about those five to seven and have them come pitch to the, the network and, and get that opportunity to have a deal team. When we talk about fundraising, so maybe this is a good time to kind of pivot into fundraising and some of those terms. So when you're a company that is raising, you have a few different options. And one thing that I do want to make sure I mention is that not every company should necessarily be venture backed, right? I think that's really important to mention. You really have to ask yourself why you're looking to raise outside capital, what your timeline is, what your goals for the company are. And if you don't necessarily need the strategic value or the cash value that, that these investors are bringing, it may make more sense to look at getting a small business loan or do something like maybe crowdfunding or, you know, there's other grants even depending on your type of work. So there are other options. When you go to raise, you have kind of multiple options as a startup. You have something called a priced equity round, something called convertible note, and then you have something called a safe. So a priced equity round, these rounds are investments based on the company's valuation, which is what the company is worth at the time of the investment. So after the founder and an investor agree on a valuation, the investor gives money in exchange for typically preferred stock in the company. So there are two main classes of stock. You have preferred and common. Preferred stock is generally what investors own because preferred stock comes with certain rights and privileges and protections. Price rounds mean you have to agree on a valuation of the company. And that can be really hard when you're still early and before there's enough actual data available to allow for a more informed assessment for evaluation. So price rounds also have a pretty hefty legal expense associated with them. So for the most part, the companies that we're working with, they're very early and they're not raising price rounds. They're either doing something called a convertible note or a safe. And so super simply put, Convertible notes and safes are agreements between a company and an investor to basically exchange cash now for shares later. So with both instruments, the investor agrees to give the company a particular amount of money now. In exchange, they'll receive the right at a certain point in time or upon a specified event in the future um, to convert that money into shares of the company at a triggering event, which is usually when the company goes to raise that first priced financing round. With convertible notes, that convertible, so you've got, you know, you've got the safe and you've got the convertible note. Within the convertible note, it's a short-term debt. It converts into equity. So in the context of seed financing, which is most of the companies that we're working with, the investors essentially loan a startup funds and then that debt, because it is debt, so it has a maturity date and an interest rate, 
Um, that debt typically will convert into shares of preferred stock upon a qualified event, like the closing of a Series A round of financing. So what's nice about a convertible note and a safe is that if you are an early stage company and you are not at a point where you feel like you can put a valuation on your company, these kind of kick that conversation down the road. And then the SAFE is, it stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And this is something that came out of Y Combinator in 2013. Like the convertible note, they enable investors to convert their investment to equity upon a trigger event, like we said, such as, you know, a, a future preferred stock round. But unlike convertible notes, SAFEs do not have a maturity date and they do not accrue interest and it lacks certain protective provisions for investors. So some investors will not participate in SAFEs. So this is really important to know. So if you are an early stage company and you're looking to fundraise for the first time, we just kind of covered that you're probably not at a point where you feel it's you have enough information, enough data points to put a valuation on your company. So you say, okay, I don't want to put a valuation on my company just yet. Let's kick that conversation down the road. I either am going to raise on a convertible note or this safe that she's talking about. The concern with a safe is that unlike the convertible note that is debt, a safe is not debt. So they don't accrue interest and they don't have a maturity date. So if a company does well enough to survive on its own without requiring further rounds of funding or equity financing, then the safe can be held indefinitely. And there's no provisions to justify a repayment to the investor like a convertible note. And you're also not getting interest. So even though interest may be something nominal, maybe like 6%, you know, over the course of 18 months or so, it becomes less insignificant and that can convert to more equity on top of the invested principal. So just all to say for the companies that are coming through Glasswell Syndicate, a vast majority of them are raising on a convertible note and they're raising pre-seed or seed funding. Okay. Thank you so much for that explanation. That was amazing. And this might be a rookie question, but when you do the convertible note or the safe, how do you determine what stocks they're going to get? Is it really just the debt and the interest and then it kind of converts at a later date once you figure out the valuation? Is that how it works? Yeah. So it's a little bit different between safes and convertible notes, but for convertible notes, yeah. So if you invest $100,000 on a convertible note, Essentially, you're saying, I'm going to give you $100,000 now. Let's put a maturity date on it. Maybe 18 or 24 months is usually pretty standard. You're going to get some sort of nominal interest rate, which is usually like 6%. What will happen is once you either hit a trigger event, which means that you you raise, let's say you go out and now you, you've raised your Series A. With a convertible note, usually there is a threshold that you know you need to raise at least a million dollars or two million dollars or something like that. But once you either hit that qualified purchasing event, what will happen then is that it will take your principal and that interest that you have and it will convert it into preferred shares. If you, let's say, haven't raised your Series A and now the maturity date is coming up, what happens is it is a loan. So at the end of that maturity date, what will happen is you either need to pay back the principal and the interest, or you can ask for an extension. And you can say, can we just extend this? Most of the time, that's not an issue because the, the reality is, is that investors, the goal is to, for most investors here is going to be to convert it into equity. You're not doing it so that 18 months from now you get 6% interest. The goal is that it converts. But that's kind of, yes, to answer your question, it, it takes that initial investment the interest that you've accrued in that time period, and then that converts in um, fundraising ground. 
Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for breaking that down. And then in regards to startups, and this could be just generally or with Last Wall Syndicate, but you mentioned that funding is just one part and the other part is strategic investment and strategic help. And so how do you recommend startups decide who they let invest in their company and what does that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. So when you are fundraising, it is really important. And this is something that we prioritize in Glasswell Syndicate a lot. It is a partnership. And that's really important. And when we were building out Glasswell Syndicate in the early days, that was key was that it wasn't just an investor network, right? An investor network is only as strong as its relationships with the entrepreneurial community are healthy. And so what we want to provide is partnership. And so it's really important as you're raising funds to also be performing diligence on the investors. It should be, it is a two-way street. It should be a conversation. And so we encourage that quite a bit through the Glasswell process is that when we're asking them questions to figure out if our members are going to invest in the company, they should be asking the investors questions. What is your portfolio management style and strategy? Do you have anyone else in your portfolio that you, you wouldn't mind if I connected with? Is there somebody else that they've funded that you could have a coffee connect with and just say, hey, what's your experience been? Can you tell me some of the ways that they've been able to help you and support you? And some of it is just going to be a gut check. Do you feel like you are clicking with this person? This You're going to be partnering for quite some time. You know, the, the horizon on a lot of these companies is, is, is not short. It is patient capital. And so I really encourage startups to feel like they are doing their own diligence on the investors and they like the relationship. Not everybody agrees with me. There are definitely people out there on podcasts who are like, hey, if someone's offering you a check, take it. I tend to go with the, you know, I, I like to call it the, the kind of phone call test. So if, you're, if your investor calls you, and you see their name flashing across your your phone, like, what is your initial reaction? Like, does do you, does your, you know, stomach kind of do you get this pit in your stomach? Are you eager to answer it? What is your reaction? Because investors are very different. You know, you're they you're going to meet a lot of different personality types, a lot of different styles. And it is important to understand that you're aligned on your goals, that you feel like it's a partnership, that they understand the timeline, they understand the KPIs, and that they're going to help you through challenging times. One of the best compliments I've ever gotten from a startup was when I got an email from an entrepreneur that was going through a very particular challenge. I saw the email, I called him, and when he answered it, he said, when I saw it was you, I was so relieved because I knew that you would sit here and brainstorm it with me. And that's really important. That's what we should be doing. That is our responsibility. We both want this to work, right? We both want the company to succeed. And so when you have the right partners behind you, not only are they going to be there sometimes just to brainstorm or say, okay, maybe I have some connections, you have some connections, let's see what we can make happen. But, you know, it's also bringing resources and, and you know, bringing that expertise, but also just bringing the support and, and realizing that we're all on the same team here and, and making sure that you're a good partner on both sides. Yeah, I love that. And I think that in investment and in VC, a lot of startups can hear the horror stories and then get really worried. But it's nice to hear that there's the flip side where if you are smart about who you take money from and you're really careful about it and you don't just take a check from anyone, like you're saying, you can actually build a really great partnership and they can actually be a mentor and an ally for your company. And so with that, I am curious, do you have tips around what a good pitch looks like and what's in a good pitch deck? What are some things to do, maybe some things not to do? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about the pitch deck specifically, one of the challenges that I see a lot is waiting entirely too long into the deck to to know what the product or service is. That is something that we see quite a bit. And it's just really unfortunate because the thing is, is kind of going back to like deal flow and all of those pitch decks that are in the portal. If you're an investor and you log in on a Monday and you say, oh, look, there's 10 new decks in next year materials. You're probably, once you establish interest, you're going to look at it at a much deeper level. But until then, you're going to thumb through. I mean, we're talking like 20, 30 seconds, maybe thumbing through the deck. And so if they're four or five slides in and they're like, I still don't even know like what this company is or what they do. That's, that's kind of, you know, you really want to make sure that you're, you're explaining what the company is as early in on in the slide deck as you can. I also say, you know, know your audience and that's for two reasons. So the first reason there is you could have the most amazing pitch in the entire world. And it doesn't matter if you send it to someone who it's completely outside of their investment thesis. So really make sure that you're looking at their their website, seeing what's in their portfolio, see if you can see any common themes, like are all the companies based in the US and you're not based in the US or you know, are all the companies at a certain stage when they were investing, like kind of get a sense of what they invest in because otherwise it doesn't matter how great it is. The other side of knowing your audience is understanding how much time to spend on what the problem is. We see that in Glasswall and we really try to bring that down during the pitch presentation, because if you're talking to a group of people in Glasswall, they understand the importance of alternative materials. They understand the importance of alternative protein. You know, a couple sentences that kind of set the foundation and, and help people understand why you're so motivated by this, totally fine. But if you're spending, you know, two or three slides, four or five minutes explaining this, that you're just missing out on time that you could be spending on something else. Something else I always recommend is to leave plenty of time for questions. Also to, to practice at different amounts of time that you may have. You may only have, if you, if you get a call where you can actually present it, you may have anywhere from five minutes to 25 minutes. So really be prepared for what your talking points are like in the back of your head, like, okay, I have 15 minutes. So that's like presentation three, right? Like, so that you feel like you have enough time to get through it because I've definitely been on calls before and I hate it when it's, we spent so much time on the front end. And by the end, it's like, they're talking so fast. They're flipping through like their revenue slide and like how much they're raising and what the val cap is. And they're like going through all these things really quickly. I'm like, Oh, that's really key information. You want to make sure that you're leaving enough time for questions because you may not have a lot of opportunity to follow up with that company if they don't get the baseline information that they need. So make sure you're leaving time for questions because there's nothing worse than running out of time and being like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to hop over to another media. I'm like, oh, I didn't get a chance to ask them like if this this product in the pipeline is also going to be vegan, like it needs to be like, oh, does it have milk in it? Does it have eggs in it? You know, things like that that you're like, this is critical piece of information for us to know if this can evolve into something else. And we ran out of time for it. If you get the chance to present, that is your opportunity to add color and context and storytelling and really articulate what your goals and your vision is for the company and enroll investors in your vision. But you may not always get the chance to present. When you're in the very early stages of raising, you may have a couple warm introductions. You may have some websites. You may have some really cold, you know, just cold emails that you're sending. A lot of times you're just attaching a deck. 
And so the deck does need to be able to speak for itself. But if you get the opportunity to present, make sure that that it's so much more than just the deck, right? They, they've seen that they can, they can read, make sure that you're adding that context, adding that storytelling, really enrolling them in your vision, being calm and collective yet energetic. They may have four 15 minute pitch meetings scheduled back to back to back to back. And that could go on, you know, in different blocks throughout the day. So you're probably not the first pitch they've heard that day. You're probably not the last pitch they've heard that day. So keeping a certain level of energy and freshness. I also think don't over-prepare because there are times where I have someone who pitches and it just, I'm like, I I can tell that they're like on autopilot because they've said the same sentence so many times that they don't even know that they're saying it anymore. And that can really take away from the presentation. It it can be kind of, you know, somewhat conversational. and, and, And I would also say to include, of course, like, market size, target market, all of those things. You want to be optimistic, yet realistic and, and somewhat conservative in those financials. Make sure you're citing things. If you're if you're putting in there facts about the market or consumers, make sure you're citing it. All those good things really include the details of the raise, the timeline, the team. You know, there's a lot of really great resources out there that go through like what the deck checklist is. So, you know, just making sure that you have all the key information in the deck so that uh, somebody doesn't have to reach back out and say, now, what is this? What is it? I mean, you really want to cut down on that information gathering kind of going back and forth phase. And that should be, um, you know, capturing most of those key highlights in that pitch deck. And otherwise, you know, I would say be open to feedback. That's very important. But I will also say when you're meeting with a lot of people, you're going to get a lot of different opinions. You're going to have one investor who says something. And then the next call, you're going to talk to another investor who tells you the complete opposite. You're going to have all this conflicting information. It's important to be receptive to feedback. It's important to go back and try to look at it, you know, without thinking, this is my baby. You know, you should kind of look, think back and say, okay, what could I potentially take from this feedback? But also don't hold on to any one person's opinion too strongly. I might get some pushback for saying that, but I do think that that's important because sometimes what I'll see that's really hard to see is a first time fundraiser and they're having different conversations with a lot of different investors. And one of the investors might give them a piece of advice. And it might be something like, I wouldn't take angels into your round. Or I would do it as a safe, not a convertible note, or I would do it as a, you know, whatever. They may have something very specific. And that's good to take in. But if you give it too much weight, what I've seen happen is sometimes people really take that and they go, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, they said I shouldn't take angels. So I'm, I'm not going to take angel investors. So I have a couple of people I was kind of talking to, but I'll, I'll not prioritize them. I'll prioritize these other investors. And then when they go back to that investor that said that, they're like, okay, you know, I, I, I didn't do any angels. And they're like, okay, well, I kind of, I took it back to my team. We're not, it's not a fit for us, but you know, good luck, you know, and, and, Don't ever count your money until it's in the bank. So as you're having lots of conversations, I do think that sometimes people take that advice and they let it play too large of a piece in the framework of their strategy, kind of keeping a certain level of separation between all the advice you're going to get while you're fundraising versus, you know, the strategy that that you are confident in and, and is really important.
Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for outlining all of that. There was so much there and I'm sure people will need to re-listen to things. But I think what you said at the end is so important because you as a founder, you almost need to have a filter around knowing what your business is, what your vision is, what you want to get out of this. And then you're seeking strategic advice and talking to people. And of course, that advice is always valuable and needed, but you don't have to copy everything to a T and you don't have to implement everything to a T as well, especially if to your point, you haven't even gotten the check yet, right? And so like nothing's ever finalized until the signatures, like the ink dries, you know, and so really making sure you take care of yourself and you're just smart throughout this whole process. And one last thing that I, I want to make sure I mentioned for a pitch deck is I would always say include, uh, we kind of talked about this earlier, but include your other asks, your non-financial asks, because if I see a deck and I go, mm, this probably isn't a fit for us. But you have like a very specific ask, like we're trying to find an accounting firm that, you know, can do this for us. Like I, it takes two seconds to send an intro email or say, hey, a couple of our startups have used um, this group before. Here's their email. I hope it works out. So make sure that you're including those things, because if it's not a fit, people like to talk about what they know. People like to make connections if they have them. And if it can take just a couple seconds, they're usually super happy to do it. So I always say it never hurts to include if you have other asks or things that investors could support outside of the capital. Totally. Love that. And with the whole investment process, I know with Glasswall Syndicate, this may not happen as much, but for folks where maybe they're not working with Glasswall or it's not a fit, if they're trying to go out for investors, there's a lot of cold pitching happening, semi-warm intros happening. And so it can be a bit aggressive, but how do you put yourself out there without coming across as aggressive, I guess is my question. Yeah, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day, so I can't take credit for this. Shout out to whoever posted it because I can't remember, but they were really talking about how you really need to find the balance where you are being assertive and kind. And and there's kind of a spectrum where sometimes people are assertive and aggressive, or they can be on the other end of the spectrum and kind of come off a little bit weak and desperate. And that's very true. So you've got to find that balance where you're assertive yet kind. I think that that goes the the furthest. You have to really understand. And, and, and this is something that is on both sides. I recognize that entrepreneurs are incredibly busy. So there have been times where I'm working with some a company that we, you know, the, the, the network is invested in. And I might reach out and they don't get back to me. And I might reach back out and they don't get back to me. And I know, hey, you're super busy, right? You'll If it's super important, you know, I'll, I'll probably call you. But otherwise, you just got a lot going on. With investors, they're getting so many pitch decks. They're getting so many asks. They're doing portfolio management. They're doing, you know, deal sourcing. They're doing panels and conferences and trying to potentially raise new funds themselves. Like it is a lot. And so if you don't hear back, it's it's important to find that assertive yet kind. Be clear on what your ask is. Don't feel like you need to be a certain level of cheery or anything like that. You're, you know, go in and, and be very clear on what you want, but follow up with a certain level of kindness. Because I will say when I get an email like I've before, I've gotten a pitch deck before and it'll be like a week later and the subject line will be like, I guess you're not interested <laughs> or something like that, which I just think kind of takes it a little bit too far because I'm like, oh gosh, I just haven't had a chance to look at it yet. And and so then of course, that's probably not a, not a fit for us. And then on the other side, yeah, you definitely have people who are like, please look at this. <laughs> like, I'll do anything. Like, let me go to the calendar. I'm begging you look at this, right? And so you've got to find that balance. But something that I've really practiced in my leadership, just outside of even fundraising, 
over the last couple of years has been just being clear on what I'm asking. That's made a huge difference. So like we're a nonprofit, we rely on members to join Glasswell Syndicate. And I would, I would send out emails that would be like, hey, we've got this network, like maybe this could be a fit for you. And I'd love to chat. And you're kind of like dancing around the ask. In the last couple of years, I've just started emailing and saying, hey, this is the offering. I think this would be attractive to you. I would like to get you added to the network. Let's chat. Super just asking what it is that I want. The response is so much greater. The response is so much greater. I wish I would have done it sooner. And so that would be my recommendation to founders. You feel like you have to kind of go through this like dance with investors. And honestly, the best emails are ones that are just like, hey, um, I sent you a deck last week. I, I hope you've had a chance to look at it. If not, here's here's some key highlights, three, four, five bullet points about the company. I'd love to get on your calendar next week. Let me know what works. You know, just that straightforwardness. And I think it gets you it gets you really far. Yeah. And people are so busy to your point, right? Like we have so many emails. And so if I have to spend five minutes deciphering what you're trying to ask of me, I'm not going to do that. Right. So it's just also about clear communication as well. And so to wrap things up, I know that we're in a very interesting time economy wise. And so if people are trying to raise, do you have any, you know, tips, any advice, any words of wisdom or hope that you can bestow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Glasswell Syndicate, we sent out a survey recently and we asked our members, we said, given the f- current <laughs> fundraising conditions, the current environment, you know, what is your appetite for new investments? Is it greater than usual, the same as usual or less than usual? Kind of assuming that there would be quite a few people who said, well, for new investments, it's a little bit less than usual, right? Because you probably have a portfolio of companies you're probably going to hold your capital to support those companies, you know, when, when they need it versus new investments. So we sent out this survey and 90% of our members said that their interest was the same or greater than usual. Only 10% of angel members in our network said that it was a less, you know, they had less appetite than usual for new investments. That was huge for us. And so that is, you know, part of my advice. And again, uh, you, you'll hear different bits of advice, but I always say stack your deck with some individual investors. That's always been my advice because when push comes to shove, these investors are patient capital. They're mission driven. They understand tough times and they get what the bigger picture is. And they can be really, really great brand ambassadors for you. They can be great portfolio managers for you. Yes, their check size may only be 25,000, 50,000, but they bring a lot beyond just the check size. And so I, my recommendation whenever times are tough or just in general is to make sure that you have some of those mission aligned members in your, you know, in your corner. Definitely think that that tends to bring a lot of value to startups and and just the support aspect when things get kind of scary. So yeah, I that would be probably my advice there. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that you've also mentioned patient capital a few times now. I'm definitely going to use that. And I've also told my clients too, there's just so much appetite and opportunity for sustainable, intentional, conscious businesses. And, you know, sustainability is really taking every industry by storm. And I know a lot of my friends in finance, like sustainable finance is now becoming a thing, which has been interesting. And also you're like, is this actually what's going on? Or is this greenwashing? But, you know, just in lines with that, my last question is just for sustainable brands, 
and founders that are trying to deal with investors that aren't as vision and mission driven as the investors at Glassfall. Do you have any tips? Because sometimes the horizons are quite aggressive, like they're expecting a return in one year or three year. And sometimes that's not realistic. And so any words of advice there? Yeah, so I think that goes back to picking your partners and picking your investors and also the advice and kind of pressure that pretend, that one investor can give that might end up actually hurting your overall round and, and kind of reputation with the other investors in that if you are not aligned with that investor, you just have to like transparency and communication while you're pitching to them is key. Most VC funds, they kind of have like a 10, 10 year, right? 10 year holding. So or 10 years. So most of these, if they feel like there's going to be exit activity within that 10 year time frame, that's not an issue. But yeah, you're definitely going to come across investors who are like, are we IPOing in two years or what's going on? Right. And as a founder, that can just send like a shock through your body of like, how do I manage that? I'm just trying to get this off the ground. And there's so many things to figure out. And you don't want that pressure. But I would also say, you know, when you're pitching for that fundraise, it's really important when to know your numbers and to be optimistic yet conservative and to make sure that investors understand what the timeline is what some of the hurdles and challenges are going to be, what your KPIs are, how you're going to know if what you're doing is successful. Of course, there's a ton of question marks when it's super early. Like everything is a question mark. Like what accounts am I going to get into? I don't know. What brand partnerships am I going to have? I don't know. But like what, what, what are you measuring as success? And what do you think the timeline is going to be? And you want to be as transparent and realistic as you possibly can, because if you have an investor that maybe is one of the bigger check writers and they're making you feel like there is an extreme sense of urgency to get exit activity, you might feel like you need to paint a different picture than what the company really is at, right? And we talk about this all the time. This happens This happens a lot in startups where everyone is always talking about all the great things that are happening, all the wonderful things that are happening. And we rarely focus on all the things that are (laughs) very, very challenging. And, you know, it doesn't always paint an accurate picture of where the company is. And so if you feel like you're having to put financial projections for the next two, two, three years that you know are probably unrealistic and that you're not going to be able to hit because this investor is kind of making you feel like you need to to meet those expectations that they're putting on you. Then what happens is you're giving those to your other investors and you're probably not going to hit them. We know you're probably not going to hit most of of your projections. I'll just say that right now. When you're pitching an investor and you give them financials, they take those financials, they put them in a spreadsheet and we give everything a haircut. We look at a bunch of different financial models. We look at a bunch of different companies we've invested in. We look at what the growth curve looks like and we sit there and we say, we don't think this is what they're going to hit. That's not to you know, to try to discourage any entrepreneurs is actually is kind of helpful for you to know that, hey, if you don't meet something, we're, we're not shocked, right? We, we're preparing ourselves for that. And if we invested in the company, we believe in you and we believe in what you're going to be able to do. But if you come in with those projections, and then we're kind of looking at actual versus projected, and now we're going, whoa, this is not realistic, you you really missed the mark on this, that can affect investors who may not now re-up in your next round because they have, you know, hesitations. And so it kind of all circles back to making sure that you have partners that you like, that you have partners that are aligned and that both sides are being really clear and really transparent on what their expectations for the business are. Yeah. 
I love that. Well, thank you so much, Macy. You shared so much valuable knowledge. I know people are going to get so much out of this. And so can you share your links and how everyone can reach you and also support Glasswall Syndicate? Yeah, absolutely. So Glasswell Syndicate, LinkedIn is the best way to stay connected with us. Please connect with me personally. I, I would love those connections. We also have Rochelle Jordan as our operations coordinator, and she's actually the committee liaison for the new material innovation um, committee within Glasswell Syndicate that we've done in partnership with MII. So definitely recommend following Rochelle. We also have a Friends of the Network newsletter. So if you just email info at glasswellsyndicate.org, say, hey, I'd like to be added to the Friends of the Network newsletter. We send those out kind of on an ad hoc basis and just let people know when we have events that are coming up, when we have application windows that are open, when we have webinars or other opportunities. You know, we did a materials event earlier this year in partnership with MII, we got like a cute little Matthew Kinney restaurant and we rented it out and we invited a bunch of people in, in New York who were in the material space. And we we want to grow that list of people. We want to invite people. We want to accelerate conversations. We want to bring people together. That is what is at the heart of Glasswell Syndicate is bringing people together. And we're hoping, you know, the last couple of years have been a little bit tough for events and things like that. We haven't been able to do much, but Moving forward, we're hoping we can go back and we do like a lot of micro events, like just 20, 30 people, dinners, happy hours, meeting at members' houses. Like a lot of our members will just be like, yeah, I would love to have people over in my house. And just having people come over and and, and building that sense of community is really important. So hopefully, you know, people will connect with us if you're a startup, if you're an investor. And then one thing that I hadn't mentioned yet, everything we've been discussing has really been focus on the early stage side of Glasswall. But we did just announce a couple of weeks ago that we're launching the world's first consortium of institutional alt protein investors. So Glasswall is typically like pre-seed through series A. Now this emerging growth consortium is a place for institutional investors that are focused on series B and beyond. We're initially starting with alternative protein, but the goal is to expand into next-gen materials. feel like it's a really great opportunity to get more funding at those later stages because, you know, all rounds are hard, but B and C rounds tend to kind of be a little bit of a valley of death for a lot of companies. And so we're hoping to bridge that gap. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. We'll have all of that linked in the show notes for everyone too, because that was a lot and there's just so many resources and we want to make sure everyone can take advantage. So yeah, thank you again, Macy. This was like, this is so great. Thank you so much. Really love the work that you're doing. Huge fan and just appreciate the opportunity to talk about Glassfall and thank you so much. And that concludes this episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot share it to your Instagram stories, and tag us at Recloseted. Make sure you subscribe to our Recloseted Radio podcast on your preferred podcast platform so that new episodes are automatically downloaded and you don't miss any of our free resources. Lastly, don't forget to rate our podcast five stars and leave us a positive review. That really helps us and continues to allow us to provide this podcast for free. Together, let's write the harmful fashion industry.